Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. We're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 27 tonight. While you're turning there, I want to um, start tonight with an observation. We're right in the middle of the lives of what are commonly called the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and currently we start moving into the life of Jacob. The first thing I wanted to, to point out to you tonight as we pick up in that story again is that in the book of Genesis, these three men plus Joseph are unique against the other characters we've seen. And so we've had the stories of Adam, um, of Cain and Abel. We've had the stories of Noah. But all of those focus around not so much a life or a biography or a uh, a progress of events, but focus in on a single event. And so Adam and Eve, we have the garden. Cain and Abel, we have uh, this sacrifice gone sideways, which leads to the killing of Abel. With Noah, we have the flood and what follows directly after it. But with Abraham, we walked alongside him uh, and touched on events spanning well over 25 years. With Isaac, we walked alongside him for much of his life, and it will be the same with Jacob. And so the author of Genesis has very much slowed down to tell us these stories in detail. Unlike the list of Genesis chapter 5, where, uh, where all we knew was a father who had a son and then he died, we have this, this uh, sense for the biography of Abraham, that he was called out of the land of Haran, and that he grew in his knowledge and understanding of God's promises over the course of 25 years until God finally fulfilled it in Isaac. And so these three are unique so far in the book of Genesis. They're not alone. There are other characters we'll follow as closely along the story. But I wanted to, after laying that, pointing that out to you, point out how different the stories are. All of them involve the self-same God, the self-same promises. All of them take place in the same general time period, in the same land, and yet the stories are very different. If we were to talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's testimonies, the story of what God had done in their lives, we get three very different stories. With Abraham, we watch as he kind of grows progressively in faith, and he slips up, he has doubts, he makes wrong decisions, he fears when he should trust, Uh, he goes through all these things, but generally we watch as his trust grows. With Isaac, we see, um, you know, a faith that's relatively young. There's no kind of calling out threshold for Isaac where he has to leave the things behind. He's just grown up. Believing in Jehovah, knowing Jehovah. We find him uh, very early on in his relationship, or very early on in his age, out in the, in the fields meditating. When his wife is barren, he naturally prays for her. But then again, when we look at the life of Isaac, it's relatively static. It doesn't have a lot of ups, and it doesn't have a lot of downs. He just has a relative 
uh, relatively faithful life that seems in comparison to Abraham on one side with miracles and Sodom and Gomorrah and Jacob on the other side with wanderings in the wilderness and craziness, his life seems kind of boring. But if you had to label it, it's one of faithfulness. And then we have Jacob. And Jacob's story is different than Abraham's or Isaac's. Jacob's involves crises, multiple crises. Jacob involves God revealing himself to Jacob and Jacob going, yeah, that's great, thanks, and going on his way and God getting his attention again. The story we're about to cover, the one we're going to walk through tonight, God isn't proactively active in the way he was in the life of Abraham. It's not that he isn't doing things, but it's happening in the background. We'll find slight reference to him. It won't be like the life of Abraham where, where what we see is Jacob growing in faith. All we'll see Jacob doing is getting the consequences of his behavior, and it's consistently and repetitively negative. It's not until we get to chapter 35 and Jacob, after, uh, after 20 years away, outside of the land, comes back that he finally gets his head on straight. But still, the story's, story is one of crisis. The rape of his daughter... Uh, and the massacring by his sons of an entire city of, uh, of people comes after that point. Okay? The reason why I mention the differences between these three men is because I think it's important to recognize how consistently as human beings, we like to look for a prototype. We like to look for a clear, definitive, this is what life with God looks like. This is the way that you chart the Christian life on a map. These are the detours and the dangers, and we can all walk it in the same way. But what we discover when we look at just these three men, the first three that we're given spiritual biographies of, are incredibly different stories. One that starts from nowhere and grows in faith. One that grows up in faith, in a family that believes in God, and has a relatively static thing. There's no backsliding of Isaac. There's sin, of course, but there's no place where he goes, I've had enough of my parents' God, and he runs off, you know, and starts dealing cards at Vegas. That, that doesn't happen in Isaac's life. And then there's Jacob's life where you would think with a faithful dad like Isaac, he would be there, but instead he's just, you know, a definitive, probably the first one on record, a prodigal. One who just goes off and does his own thing and only pays heed to God because God won't leave him alone. And so if you look at the salvation story, in Abraham you see one of stepping out in faith. In Isaac you see one of continuing in faith. And in Jacob you see one of surrendering in faith. But they're very different. And it's worthwhile to keep that in mind because if you're anything like me, you're going to find these metrics. You're going to choose characters in the scriptures or in the history of the church or people you know. And you're going to hold up their story and use it as a way to show how sucky yours is. And it's not a good way to go about it. So with that being said, let's, let's begin uh, in chapter 27 tonight. Just to get you up to speed again, Isaac, after praying for his barren wife, Rebecca, uh, has now two sons, the older son, Esau, and the younger son, Jacob. Now, those terms are somewhat relative because they're twins, but the way the culture works, that's a big deal. The older is the one who's expected to receive the majority of the inheritance. He's the one who is in the position to continue the legacy of his family. But while Rebecca was pregnant, 
God spoke to her directly and said, that's not how it's going to work this time. Instead, the older shall serve the younger. It's important that we remember that, uh, that Rebecca has that promise because in one sense, we can see how it informs her behavior. In another sense, it makes her behavior completely irrelevant. But effectively, they grow up, and there's one, uh, two other components you need to understand. The first, the first is that there's favoritism going on. Isaac loves Esau. Rebecca loves Jacob. And the fact that they're comfortable to live in that place, and it's clear that the boys know those places, will discover that Jacob is very much a mama's boy. Uh, the fact that they know this and allow it to exist is what creates the problem we're about to go in, plus one other factor, which is that Esau and Jacob have a history. Okay? When they were younger, there was an occasion, we read about it just a few chapters ago in chapter 25, where Esau had returned from the hunt without catching anything. He was hungry, and so he asked his brother Jacob for some of the stew that he was cooking. And Jacob said, that's fine. Just in exchange, I want something from you. I want your birthright. I want the inheritance. And Esau apparently doesn't see the imbalance of that question and just agrees to it. And the commentator, the author, does not speak highly of that choice. He refers to it and he says, so Esau despised his birthright. He thought nothing of it. He thought it was no big deal. It was worth giving up for a pot of stew. Okay. But on the other hand, what we see in Jacob is also important. We see that he knows how to take advantage of people. It's not held up in a positive light, and he will get his, I promise you, by the end of tonight. But all of this background leads us here into chapter 27. So chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I might eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So what he says here is, uh, it tells us first off that he's old enough that his sight is failing him. He's gone blind, okay? And he kind of sees that as a sign of what's to come, and he just recognizes that if he's going to give his blessing, sooner rather than later is the paradigm. He wants to make sure he's alive long enough to do this, so he wants to get it out of the way. Now, I want you to notice right here, it may not be apparent to you, but it should be apparent to the original readers of Genesis, we have something out of place. Okay. Every other time you see a father giving a blessing to his child in the Old Testament, it's to his children. Okay. This is a family affair. This is something where everybody sits down and it's done collectively. But what we see here has no mention of Rebecca, no mention of Jacob. It sounds like a plot, and it probably is. Esau wants to take care of this without causing any more conflict in what's already a strained relationship. It seems to me very likely that Rebecca has communicated to Isaac this um, word from the Lord she had about the kids. But can you imagine seeing Rebecca's favoritism, how Isaac would receive that? He'd be like, oh yeah, of course God has chosen Jacob, right? Your, your child, your son, that makes perfect sense. We can't really tell what's going on here, but it is a glaring absence in this text that Jacob is missing from the story. It's even more surprising to find that Rebecca is almost missing from the story. Look at verse 5. Now, Rebecca was listening 
when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went into the field to hunt game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob. Now already here we're seeing that favoritism play out. He said to his son Esau, she said to her son Jacob. The author's being intentional here. But what we find out is that Rebekah over, overheard um, Esau being sent out for one last kill, for one last feast, so that the blessing can be given. And so as soon as Esau's out the tent and out in the field looking for a hunt, he call, she calls Jacob to him, and she says, verse 6, Rebekah said to Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food, or sorry, prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Now, if you're incapable of reading before, between the lines here, the idea is to get the blessing first. The idea is duplicitous. It's deception. She's going to make this somehow happen so that Jacob is the one blessed and not Esau. Okay. Now, notice how um, Jacob responds here in verse um, 11. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. So what he says here is, look, I know that dad is blind, but tangibly, me and my brother are incredibly different people. He says, I'm smooth and hairless, and he is very hairy, okay? And so he's just recognizing here that this plot can go sideways, which is a clear confirmation. If you didn't get it already, it is a plot, okay? This is a deception. Now, I want you to notice the echoes we're hearing here, right here in this text, that are familiar to us. Once again, once again, we have food, we have deception, and by the end of this, we're going to have attempted fratricide. Okay, the killing of a brother. This is Genesis chapter 3 and 4 all over again. We're watching as it plays out again, this time in the context of a family. But I want you to remember tonight that Rebekah and Jacob both have the promise of God that Jacob gets it all. And how do they respond to that promise? By deceptively trying to bring it to pass. By taking advantage of their blind father and spiting their brother to make it come to pass. That's what's going on here, okay? And so he says, but if he finds out, everything's going to go sideways, but Rebecca is so convinced in her plan, listen to what she says in verse 13. His mother said to him, let the curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. And so she says, if there's any negative consequence, I'll bear it. Now, if she's being explicit here, and by curse she means curse, then this is probably a weird thing to say. We have no reason to believe that anyone in the Bible thought there was the possibility of the transference of a curse, like she could act as some sort of spiritual shield from whatever the consequences of this deception would be. But it's enough for Jacob, and so he goes. So, verse 14, he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in her house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. Now, notice that added word, which is super strange. Where were the clothes that Esau wore? In Rebekah's house. See, this is the first time we get the symbol that she's probably been waiting for this. 
This is not a spontaneous plan. This is, this is an in-cold-blood plot, right? She has thought this out. She's come up with a plan. She's been preparing the supplies for this, and so she has on hand some of Jacob's older brother's clothes, which she dresses him in. Uh, verse 16, In the skins of young goats, of the young goats, she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And so she makes this touch disguise of these goat furs, on both around his neck and on his arm so that he's hairy as well. Just as an aside, that tells us what Jacob meant when he said, my brother is very hairy, right? I mean, goat fur is not hairy like I'm hairy. It's not hairy like anyone I know is hairy. Um, but that's, uh, that's the difference between these two men. And so she dresses him um, in her brother's garments she dresses him in the skins of goat. In verse 17, she put the delicious food and bread which she had prepared into the hands of her son Jacob. So the stage is set. Feel with me, if you can tonight, the tension of what's about to happen. Because what's the danger in the next scene? It's twofold. One, that Isaac sees through the disguise. Two, that Esau comes back before it's over. Okay, so there's a time limit on what's going on, and then there's the danger of it going sideways. And if you watch carefully, you'll notice that Jacob is doing his best to keep it together, but he does have to adapt on the fly. Notice verse 18. So he went into his father and said, my father, and then he goes on, here I am. Uh, who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done this as you told me. Now sit up and eat my game that, my, that your soul may bless me. Now, what we call that in gambling is overplaying your hand. Okay? Because what he does is instead of just answering simply, I'm Esau, he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. And he still can't stop talking, so then he rehearses the whole plan. Right? One of the most common ways that we betray the fact that we're lying is we say too much. And he can't even help himself here. And that's problematic, problematic, as we'll see in just a second. Verse 20, but Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He's shocked that the kill of this game and then dragging it back to the house and the cooking of it has all gone over so quickly. He's already suspicious. Okay. And notice what Jacob does. He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Do you see what he does? He indicts God and wraps him into the plot. He brings him into it, and he effectively, much like Adam did when he said, it's the woman that you gave me, he now puts it on and uses God himself as a deception. He says, I'm back quickly because God had favor on me. And so he continues here, verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Okay? So the suspicion here is tangible. Isaac is not convinced that this is his oldest son. Things aren't adding up. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, and the hands are the hands of Esau. So there we see the problem with Jacob talking so much. Of course he doesn't sound like his brother. He can be doing the best Esau impression he knows, but it doesn't sound right. And so he comes, and he feels him, he touches the fur, and he goes, well, that's not my smooth boy, Jacob. And then notice what happens in verse 23. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau hands, so he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. 
In the Hebrew there, that's a single word, a single syllable, in fact, okay? Jacob is getting smart. He recognizes here that talking so much was problematic, and so he just says, yep, that's it. Verse 25, then he said, bring it near me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near him, and he ate, and brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. This is the final test. Okay, this is the last line of defense that Isaac, old blind Isaac has. Verse 27, so he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said... And so he, as he's getting in close to his neck, he smells Esau's garments, which smell tremendously Esau-like, whatever that was. And so that's it. He's confident now. And so he begins the blessing. He says, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. In general, he just wants what's best for his oldest son. But I want to draw your attention again to what he says in the middle when he says, Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. It is hard for me to read this and not think that Isaac is aware of the threat of what Rebekah says that God has said, and he's trying to counteract it here. But even if that's not the case... He ends up verbalizing in his own blessing exactly what God said was going to happen. Jacob and Esau were, uh, were to be brothers, but the older would serve the younger. And now it's encoded in the blessing itself. Verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from his presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. That's how down to the wire it was, okay? So imagine out one side of the tent goes Jacob, and in the other flap comes Esau. It's that close, okay? And so here uh, we have this kind of um, deja vu moment. So verse 31, he also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Now it's possible here that Isaac sees what he's just done is irreversible. That there really is something to the verbal power of the blessing. I would say it's hard to avoid that in the book of Genesis because we watch as Moses does the same thing, or sorry, as Noah does the same thing with his children, and it seems to be determinant. We watch as the same thing happens with Abraham uh, and Isaac and later with Joseph. The, this seems to be very important and not just something that people perceive to be important despite how it contrasts or compares with God's plan. But it's also possible here that when he says, and truly he shall be blessed, he's recognizing the fact that exactly what God said would happen is coming to pass. Here, Isaac has come up with a plan to get his own way, and he has failed. Okay. Now, if we sum up the behavior of these two sons, I want you to recognize that one has failed without God, and the other has succeeded without God. The reason I bring that up is because of the saying of George MacDonald, who says, 
to do something without God, you will either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. And that's what's going to happen in their lives, okay? And so there really is no hero in this story. There's plenty of victims. There's plenty of complex sin relationships and consequence. We have Esau, who's not loved like, by Rebekah like he should be. We have Jacob, who's not loved by Isaac like he should be. We have uh, Esau, who's taken advantage of by his mother and his brother. We have Isaac, who's deceived, right, by his wife and son's plot. And we have Rebekah, who apparently does not have that great of a relationship with Isaac, right? Clearly here, there's tension existing in here. This favoritism has come between them in this marriage. And if it wasn't there then, it clearly is now, right? It's hard to imagine that tomorrow they get up and they sit at the breakfast table like nothing happened. So it's kind of a mess. And so Esau shows up, Isaac trembles very violently, and then it's Esau's turn to tremble, verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob, once again, means the wrestler, the heel grabber, the conniver. And so Esau says, He's lived up to his own name, and then he tells us why. For he has cheated me these two times. First, he took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I've made him lord over you and all his brothers, and I've given to him, given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing? My father, bless me. Give me also, O my, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice, and he wept. Now, here, Esau really cares. Earlier, he couldn't give a fig about the future. But now, it's emotionally overcoming, and he weeps. And this is why he becomes an illustration of the New Testament, of seeking repentance with tears and not being able to find it. Okay? Because there is a direct correlation between event A in the giving up of the birthright uh, for, for a pot of stew and B, the deception of the blessing. One shows Esau's heart and the second one plays out and the emotions are there, but he didn't care when he gave away the first half. And so Isaac does come up with a second hand or a second place blessing and he gives it in verse 39. Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of heaven on high. By the way, that's not good news. He basically says, your brother's inheritance, you're going to be elsewhere. He continues on, verse 40, by your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you go grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. You know what this reminds me of? Do you remember in Sleeping Beauty, when the fairies all give their blessings, and then the evil fairy shows up to give a curse, but one of the fairies has held back, and she can't get rid of the curse that she will prick, his, prick her finger on a spindle, but she sets a timeline on it that it won't happen until her 18th birthday, and she won't die but sleep until awoken by a kiss. That's about as close as Isaac can come here. He can't adjust things, but he does modify it slightly, and he says that your service to your brother, and clearly here he's not talking about Esau and Jacob, 
the nation of Edom and the nation of Israel, their descendants. He says, there will come a time where you will break their bonds. And you can, by the way, follow the history of Edom through the Bible and find when they're subjective, subjected under the rule of David, and then when they take advantage of Israel in the book of Obadiah, when Israel is being ransacked and they basically stand on the sidelines and cheer and then join the sacking of Jerusalem. Okay? And so there is prophetic value to what, uh, to what is communicated here for Esau. So, here's the psychological question. Imagine with me that we're, we're Jerry Springer set right now and we've got the family out and we're walking through this whole thing. The obvious question is, what exactly was everybody expecting out of all of this awfulness? Right? We've got Isaac who's trying to destroy the custom and in a sneaky way take care of things. We've got Jacob who, you know, just gives in to his mother's terrible plan and barely puts up a fight. We have Rebecca who's plotted against her husband and her firstborn son. What's supposed to happen next? Well, what happens next is we see in verse 41, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Okay? So notice what he says here. He says here, I'm not going to do this until dad's dead. But as soon as he is, we're going to have a second funeral. Right? That's his idea. And I just have to ask, big hairy hunter Esau, what did Rebecca see being the outcome that Esau would go, well, you guys want it fair and square. I guess I shouldn't have thrown such a fit. Sorry. You know, do you need anything at the grocery store? This is what we've just watched is the atomic explosion of a family. And it never repairs. There's no going back from this. The reason why I emphasize that is because this is going to be a constant in Jacob's life. We generally see him walking away from carnage. That is Jacob's life, okay? And the reason that is Jacob's life is because he has absolutely no connection with what God is actually doing. He's running parallel to it. He's probably, like I said, aware of it. But having the promise isn't enough. He doesn't say, like Abraham, Esau, choose whatever direction you take. You go, and God will take care of me. He has to grasp. He has to grab. He has to fight for himself. The only way Jacob is going to experience success is the only way he knows how, which is through subtlety, through cunning, through wrestling for it. The only one who's going to take care of Jacob is Jacob. And as we'll see next week, that's a problem. That's a problem. And so Esau's basically here plotting to murder his brother, once again, an echo of Genesis chapter 3 and 4. Uh, and so, verse 42, But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while, and tell your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done for him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Okay, and so she basically says, look, Jacob, you got to get out of here. Things are too hot. Things are too dangerous. Just go away for a while. Eventually things will cool down. She actually says, 
Esau's eventually going to forget about this, and then everything will be okay. I think that's tremendously naive. But what's more important for us tonight is to recognize that in sending Jacob away here, she's trying to make sure she doesn't lose both sons. She loses them anyways. She's already lost Esau, right? This is the final straw in his relationship with his mother, no doubt. That's why she says she's already lost him. She says, unless I lose two sons, you need to get away from Esau so that he doesn't kill you. But when Jacob returns, it's over 20 years later and Rebekah is dead. You see, Rebekah is trying to make her dreams come true. And what she gets is a nightmare. And when she tries to moderate this nightmare, it just gets worse. And I point that out because it probably seems, for some of us, relatively familiar. Instead of here, instead of there being any reference to God as Savior or as Protector, we see Rebecca the problem solver. And we'll discover that Jacob is truly her son. But with this, she actually sends him away and writes him out of her life for the rest of her life. Verse 46, Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. You know that saying that conflict makes strange bedfellows? It's a little bit ironic that here it's being spoke, or here it applies to a married couple that shares a bed, right? But here's something they can agree on, right? It's hard to imagine that Rebecca and Isaac are on speaking terms at this moment, but there's one thing worth talking about. They both hate Esau's wives. Look at what she says. It's so strong. Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. These are the two women that Esau has married. Okay? And so this is, once again, though, a plan. Why does she frame it in this way? Because this is something that even Isaac can't deny. That his favorite son, who's a great hunter, has picked a couple of terrible wives. And so what does she say? She continues here. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so 28 verse 1, Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite woman. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Do you see what Rebecca has done again? She's very subtly manipulated her husband. She doesn't come out and say, hey, Esau is going to kill Jacob, because maybe Isaac wouldn't believe it. But even if he would, Rebecca knows a better way. And so she just subtly pushes a sore subject and says, you know, if we end up with another Hittite woman in the house, we're going to be miserable. And that's all she needs to say. Jacob reflects on how he got his wife, where Rebecca came from. And so he does what his father did for Isaac. He goes to get a wife from their kin. And so he sends him away, and he says, verse 2, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave Abraham. Now that's a pretty high and unprompted praise, right? There's no deception here. He knows he's sending away Jacob, but he passes on to him rather verbally 
the blessing that was given to Abraham for many descendants, for God to go with him and bless him in this. I think the reason why this is the case is because Isaac knows when he's been beat. This is a characteristic of his life. What happened every time there was a fight at a well? He gave up the well and looked for a new one. He's a peaceful guy. And so here, he, he just recognizes. Whether it's wrestling against Rebecca or he sees it in the bigger picture of wrestling against God, he's willing to tap out. He goes, okay, this is what God wanted. This is where we're at. I'm going to lean into the plan now. And so he sends him away. So, pause. Of all the victims in this story, if there really is a winner we have to pick, it's Jacob. Right? Because it looks like he gets everything. It looks like he gets away with it. In fact, just a second from now, God is going to reveal himself to Jacob and affirm all of the promises that have been spoken over to him. That's striking for a couple of reasons. One, it's striking because God said what was going to happen before Jacob and Esau were born, before they were adults, before they had behaved like this, and God stays on course. That's surprising, right? It's interesting here that unlike some other occasions in the Bible, God doesn't interfere and go, hey, you guys have made a total mess of things. We're going to go you know, straight to jail. There's no pass and go here. No collect $200. He doesn't reset the pieces and begin again. He just seems to lean in and say, this is it. I'll show you what I mean in just a second, but keep that in mind because it should bother you. It bothers me. So, verse 6, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So Esau is looking on at this, and he's trying to get back in his dad's good graces. He's recognized now that when he independently took two wives from the Hittites without consulting his parents, that that was a bad move. And now he watches as the younger brother who seems to have all of his mother's love and now the blessing of his father is going off to do things right, specifically in reference to his older brother doing things wrong. Okay, That probably doesn't feel good. So verse, um, verse 7 Jacob obeyed his father and mother and God to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife beside the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. Okay. So what he does here is he goes, okay, so what I need to do to please my parents is to find somebody in the tribe. Well, there's Isaac's brother Ishmael. I'll go and take one of his descendants. Now, this is foolish for two reasons. One, if there's something wrong with your marriage, adding another person into it is not going to help. Okay? Part of the frustration, no doubt, with Ishmael's behavior is not just that he took a Hittite wife, but he took Hittite wives. And although Abraham had a concubine, that is never shown in a positive light. And Jacob's going to end up in the same place, but it's not a good place to be. But Esau, even the way the story tells it, it sounds like there was a wedding on Thursday and another on Saturday, right? It's just, he just takes two. He doesn't take one and then take another. He takes two, okay? But second, second, Ishmael's family is already outside the promise. He gets it, but he doesn't get it. 
he goes and he takes a wife who's a descendant of Ishmael, this man who's a wild man who's always been kind of against Isaac as the blessed brother. In fact, it's almost ironic considering the context of what's going on here. But the point is this. Esau is impulsive. He's driven by his passions and his own wisdom and whatever seems right in the moment. And so here, momentarily, his thought on how to get back his parents' favor is to go take another wife, and this one from the Ishmaelites. It doesn't tell us how they responded, because you should already know. It doesn't have to, okay? It also does that to kind of close the story of Esau for a while, although we will come back to him. So verse 10, chapter 28. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give you and your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you, uh, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until you have done what I have promised you. So the first thing he, he sees here is this dream, and the vision is of a ladder. The word is relatively obscure. It's more likely some form of staircase, um, more Led Zeppelin than ladder, right? Um, but what he sees is first angels coming up and down it. That's why we know it's clearly not a ladder. You can't do both at the same time. Um, but a staircase has lanes. And so they're ascending and descending on this ladder, and at the top of it, he sees the Lord himself, and the Lord speaks. And the first thing the Lord says to him is effectively the Abrahamic covenant. It's almost word for word what we saw in Genesis 12:3, what we saw imparted to Isaac. God just kicks it forward to the next generation, to Jacob of all people. But he also adds to that that he's going to go with him as he leaves the land, that he's going to protect him and make sure he comes, comes back because he is with him. And so he says, in this mission to find a wife and return to the land, you will be successful because I will be with you. Okay? Now, now we can ask the question, why? Okay? There's two parts to the why. First off, the New Testament makes clear that God's choices are not based on us. In other words, God chose Jacob, not because Jacob was a great guy, but because God chose Jacob. It doesn't really get any deeper than that. But if we try and justify and go, well, yeah, Jacob was a scoundrel, but at least he was a scoundrel towards spiritual things, you're going to miss the emphasis that the New Testament makes. When Paul talks about Jacob and Esau, the way he points out is that God chose before they were born, before they'd done anything right or wrong. Okay? God's election, his choice, was previous. But we still have to go, okay, well, why doesn't God deal with Jacob? Why doesn't he even call him out on this? Why does he just allow him to have everything despite the fact that he's a dirty, rotten scoundrel? And the reason is because God's not done with Jacob. And a good deal of the way that God disciplines his children is through the natural reality of their behavior. 
And what we're going to see is that, uh, that God doesn't have to directly, miraculously interfere with Jacob's life. Jacob's doing a darn good job of it. See, that's another thing you have to remember. Can you really say here that Jacob got away with it? How big is the loss that he experiences in this behavior? He loses his mother, who he no doubt loves. He's alienated from his father. He's ruined his relationship with his brother. He's leaving his homeland to go into a foreign place. Even now, we see that Jacob doesn't make a good hero. Even now, we see that Jacob's ability to wrestle to get what he wants comes with a massive caveat. Comes at a terrible cost. And that will continue in his life. But there is an encouragement here. The reality is the story starts with Jacob, but it ends with Israel. And when, it, when Israel, when Jacob in his old age stands before Pharaoh and looks back on his life, he's going to have an honest view of life and an honest view of God that we can't imagine here. Okay. But nonetheless, God reveals to him and speaks to him. Now, what about this vision? Why is the vision shaped in this way? What does he see here? What he sees is a God who is actively involved in earth itself, right? The idea of the angels of God, his servants, ascending and descending is a connection between heaven and earth. And the recognition is that God is doing something on earth. Now, why is that meaningful to Jacob? Because Jacob honestly believes that even if there is a God and God has a plan, it's Jacob who needs to do something. And he's going to continue to think this. You see... God was fully capable of making sure that Jacob got the blessing, despite whatever intentions Isaac and Esau had. But Jacob and Rebekah couldn't help but interfere. They felt the need to fulfill the promises of God. That won't be the last time in Jacob's life. And so this vision here, he sees the reality. God enthroned in high and active on the world, on the earth. That's an important, by the way, Christian teaching. The Bible teaches that God is transcendent, and what we basically mean by that is he can't be contained, that you can't build a house around God, uh, that when you conceptualize God, he's always bigger and greater, that there's an incomprehensive side to God, even though he's the God who's revealed himself. There's still mystery. There's still unknown. There's still beyond. God is transcendent means he's completely above everything and can't be held to... Um, to our whim or to our contract. Unlike the gods of the ancient world who could be manipulated through sacrifice and sorcery, you can't put God in your debt. You can't put God in your pocket. That's what transcendent means. But it would be a mistake to say that that's all the Bible says about God. It also says that he's tremendously present, that he's actively involved. Maybe you're familiar with the illustration that the deists in the 16th through the, or in the 17th through the 19th century used to describe their understanding of God as a watchmaker. And so God had built this world, built it intricately like a watch, wound it up so that it could run itself and then walked away. That's not the God of the Bible. See, Jacob believes in God, but he's a practical atheist. He believes that there is a God, he just believes that that's irrelevant to his problems, irrelevant to his life. There's distance there. And so this vision is a reminder for us that God is working, even in people like Jacob, even in people like us. 
that the things that seem so insurmountable to you, the promises where you feel like the only way I'm getting around this is to fight for myself, to manipulate for myself, to um, you know, do wicked things so that good may come. Yes, he's treated me horribly, and that gives me justification to behave in this way. All of that behavior effectively says, I have to fix this. I am the God. I am the Savior. But what we see in this vision is a God who's actively involved. And it's intriguing to me that in John chapter 1, Jesus is talking to a fresh disciple. He's, he's converted to being a disciple in a moment. Specifically because Jesus walks up to a man he's never, uh, never met and he says, Ah, a son in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, How do you know me, Lord? And he says, I saw you under the fig tree. And although that seems totally cryptic to us, at that moment he says, surely you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If you believe in me because I said you saw you under the fig tree, we're only getting started. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now here's what we don't always pick up on in that story. First off, when he says, behold an Israelite in whose there is no deceit, no guile, that's the Greek word that's used to translate Jacob's name. He references this story there, not just in the latter. When he says, I saw you under the fig tree, most scholars believe that's a reference to study. It was a common way of talking. In fact, it says in the Old Testament prophets that one day everyone will sit under their vine and under their fig tree and they will no longer need to be taught because the Lord will be their teacher. And so it had become come common when you were studying the scriptures to think of it conceptually like sitting under a fig tree. And what he basically says here is, I know what you were studying. That's why I called you one who there's no Jacob in. And so he's shocked because it's intimate knowledge. But it seems to revolve around this story. It's fascinating. You can look at it yourself in John chapter 1. But here's the point. Jesus takes this and he says, if you want to understand the ladder between heaven and earth, you want to understand how to know that God is actively involved in life, he says, just wait and see what I'm going to do. And he's talking about the cross. If you want to know that God is going to fix things, you look at the cross of Jesus Christ. You take the darkness of the world that we live in that is self-caused. You take the wickedness that we find in ourselves that we cannot fix. You take the problem that we just complicate through our own desire to fix the problem, which includes religion, which says, God, just tell me what to do and I will do it, naively not recognizing how deep the problem goes. And God cares. And he gets so actively involved, he's born as a human being. And he lives the perfect life that you are incapable of living. And he dies the death that you deserve on your behalf. And he takes care of the problem. That's why we call Jesus the Savior. Okay? But the fact that there is a Savior named Jesus, the fact that God became flesh, that's the latter. That's the fact that God is actively involved. And to tell you the truth... His calling of Jacob is all leading up to that place. It begins all the way back here when God says, I'm going to bring a savior. And he starts by giving descendants to Abraham, to Isaac, and now he's going to shepherd Jacob through his life so that he can get all the way down the genealogy to Jesus. He has a plan, and he's going to accomplish it, and he doesn't need our help. Okay. So, um, let's look at how Jacob responds. Verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in the, this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, 
this is the gate of heaven. Okay? So he's so shocked by this, he, he says to himself, I thought I was just in no place at all. I thought I was lost. I thought I was out in the wilderness. And here, even here, God is present. He's shocked by this. So much so that he names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. But remember, there's nothing here. There's no house. There wasn't even a bed. There was a rock for a pillow, right? Even here, God is active. Even in renegade Jacob running away from my problems because I've screwed everything up, God is present. Okay, that's the recognition of what's going on here. So, verse 18, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar, and he poured oil on the top of it, and he called that name of the place Bethel, which once again means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I will go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. So he responds, and he basically says, if this is what God is really going to do for me, then I will live for God. If God is going to make sure that I come back in peace, he says, uh, he says that I will come back to this place. He says that I will give to God a tenth. Okay? Remember, here, there's no anything that Jacob has to give. He has nothing. He has no property. The inheritance of his father that he just won through scandal, he doesn't even get that because he goes away. Okay? But he says, if God really will take care of me, if God's really going to give me an inheritance, then I will respond by giving it back to him. This is the second time in the book of Genesis a tithe has been mentioned. And the word just means a tenth. But the implication in both places is the same. It's the recognition that our provision comes from God. Okay? And so we give back to God because we recognize that he first gave to us. And so he makes this promise, but it's hard to read this as 100% uh, as positive. And this is why I say this. Because it sounds like he sees this as a, as a place to bargain. He says, okay, fine. If you do these things, then I will worship you. And it may be that this is better to understand a sense. He may just be saying, since you're going to do all this, this is how I'm going to respond. But the fact that there's a long time period, the leaving and the coming back, makes it sound like he's making an offer. He's trying to sweeten the deal and say, okay, God, well, here's what I'll give you in exchange. Now, we'll see more of that behavior later. But let's move on to chapter 29. Then Jacob went on his journey. Now, I just want to make a note here. I've told you before, I'm not going to tell you everything. Sometimes I'm just going to point things out that you can think about later. The idiom here for went on his journey is literally he picked up his feet. And absolutely no one has any idea what it means. Is it an expression of joy that he's now got, you know, a kick in his step? Is it that he traveled very quickly so he picked up his feet like he was running? We have no idea. But it's a unique expression only used here. So he picked up his feet, and he came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. Now, we should be catching already echoes to the last time we found ourselves in Haran. Right? When Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And the first place he came to was a well, and that's where... That's where he found Rebecca, right? Watch what happens here. Um, the stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Now, why does it tell us that detail? 
It tells us that detail because of what's about to happen, but the emphasis it's making here is that probably so that nobody would take advantage of the water, they had put such a large rock over the whole of the well that it took the whole community of shepherds to move it so that they could water their flocks, okay? It's a built-in security system. A rock so big you need help to move it. So no one shepherd could sneak in at other times and um, you know, take more, uh, take more than was allowed. And so he comes here and he speaks to the shepherds. Notice what he says, verse 4. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we're from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. No doubt they do. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it's well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Do you see that echo? Right? The servant gets there in chapter 24 and he prays, God, the first woman I talked to her, let her be. And it's the same thing here. As soon as he started this conversation, Rebecca is coming. But are you noticing a glaring difference? There's no prayer here. Jacob's just on his own. In fact, notice what happens next. Um, verse 7, he said, Behold, it's still high day, and it's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. So he sees Rebecca and the sheep coming, and the first thing he wants to do is get rid of the audience. He's like, why don't you guys just hurry up and get out of here, is what he says effectively. And they explain, verse 8, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with the father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well of the mouth, uh, sorry, rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So the first thing we see there is a reversal. Remember in the other story, the servant asked Rebekah, to give him a drink and water his camels. Here, it's Jacob who gets water for Rachel. But there's another thing we see here, which is a tremendous feat of strength. Despite the fact that there was a large stone over the well and they were waiting for everybody to get there, Jacob just walks up without help and, and you know, overpowers the stone and gives water to Rebekah. Some commentators have pointed out, why are the other ones there already? What's the advantage to showing up early when you know others are going to be late? Okay. And what they think is probably they're in line. They're cued, right? They've all got tickets to the well, and the first one there gets to go first. He sets aside custom entirely and just gives water to Rachel. I want to point something out, though, that I think is a mistake. Many people see this as a romantic feat of strength, right? It's him flexing his muscles for Rachel because he's overwhelmed with love for her. That's coming. It's not stated yet. The emphasis in this passage, if you read it closely, is actually on the fact that she's Laban's daughter. He's trying to get in Laban's good, good graces, not impress Rachel, not directly. Okay? But I want you to notice the difference between the story in 24 and the story here. Who's the hero? Jacob. Jacob impresses Laban and gets in good with the family that he's supposed to get. Jacob uses his own strength and cunning. He wrestles the rock, if you will, just as his name implies, off the well to make sure that he can accomplish his plan. It's totally different than the tremendous, miraculous leading of God we saw with the servant of Abraham in chapter 24. And so, <clears throat> verse 11, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Now, it does, once again, seem like an earmark of romanticism that there's a kiss here, but it's very unlikely to be a romantic kiss. Uh, in fact, it's the only, I mean, just look at the order of events here. 
He rolls the well, and before introducing himself or explaining anything, he kisses and then he weeps. Doesn't that seem strange? What he gives her here is a standard greeting, okay? And then he bursts down in tears because he's miraculously found where he was going, but he weeps instead of praising like the servant did. He's emotionally overwhelmed by the small potential possibility has just become past. He can't believe his good fortune. But there's no reference to here that he thanks God for what he's done here. So uh, Rachel, like Rebecca, runs and tells Laban. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. See, not romantic. And brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. There are times when people speak more than they know, and that is one of the places. Laban looks in Jacob and he says, You are my family. He has no idea how actually true that is. They are peas in a pod. They are two of a kind. They are very similar. They are bone and flesh. Verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, Okay, so he stays with him for a month. He just hangs out um, with Laban in the family. Verse 15, Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And there's two ways to read that question. Because you're my kinsman, should you serve me for nothing? One is very positive. Your family, shouldn't I give you wages? The other is relatively negative. It's, it's effectively saying, look, if you're going to stick around, you're going to work. It's a transition from family and a family role in the business to employee, effectively. And the reason I think it's the latter is because what happens next and the behavior that Laban shows, he only does things that are in his best interest. He's not offering to do something good for Jacob. He's offering to do something good for Laban. And so he says, why don't you work for me? Just tell me what you want. And so, verse 16, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now here's another phrase, another Hebrew idiom that we don't actually understand. When it says that Leah had weak eyes, we don't know what that means, but notice the contrast. We have weak-eyed Leah and Rachel, who was beautiful in form and appearance. Clearly here, whatever weak-eyed means, it's not a good thing. Okay? Leah is the oldest, but she hasn't yet found a husband. In contrast, Rachel is beautiful, but she's the younger sister. And so, what does it say in verse 18? Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. So what he says is, okay, you want a contract? I'll give you seven years of labor if you let me marry your daughter, Rachel. Now, just for context. Later in the Old Testament, it tells us that the highest price you could set for a dowry was 50 shekels. Now, the Hebrew shekel in those days and the Babylonian shekel are not the same, but they're relatively similar. And when we look at Babylonian uh, contracts, we know that a shepherd would earn between a half shekel to a shekel a month. Okay? So seven years worth of shekels is about 75, 74, uh, 74 shekels, where the high mark for a dowry later in Israel's history is 50. I only point this out to you to say that it's a very high offer. Okay. Let me point out in another way. How many of you can imagine a seven-year engagement where you're working for the dad for seven years so that he'll let you marry his daughter? Right? It's almost inconceivable in our day. But it says a few things. 
says that Jacob is truly motivated, right? He's willing to pay a high price. And let's just recognize this. From here on forever, Rachel is going to know Jacob as the man who worked seven years to be my husband. She's going to see the cost just as much, okay? You were looking for your romantic act of love. Here it is, and it even has payoff. Notice what it says next. Uh, well, let's get with, through with Laban, verse 19. He said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. It just flies by because he knows what's at the end. And so he's counting down the days, but it doesn't feel overwhelming. To him, seven years of shepherding for Laban is totally worth it. Now, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people in the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be his servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Okay, so here's what happens. He comes and he says, I've fulfilled my contract, now the wedding. And they have the whole ceremony, everything goes on. It comes to the culmination, which in an ancient wedding was actually the bride and the groom, the bride is veiled, going into the tent and consummating the marriage. Okay, this is late at night. A festival is going to kick up in the morning and continue on. Um, it's an ongoing thing. But remember here, we're in the ancient world. It's a party, so there's alcohol. It's night, so it's dark, and there's a veil. And what we see here is Laban just conveniently brings him the wrong woman. And Jacob wakes up the next morning after consummating the wedding, married to the wrong woman. Now, what is the difference between Leah and Rachel? One is somehow unattractive and one is attractive. That's true, but what's more important? Leah is the older, and Rachel is the younger. And so here, Jacob experiences a deception, a swapping of the younger and the older, just like he had done to his father. Laban is Jacob's worst nightmare because he's a perfect reflection of himself. Okay, and so this happens. And there's probably lots of questions that we could answer right here. I'm not going to because I really want to make it through tonight. But just, just, just for a moment. Is it weird to you that this is irreversible? Is it surprising to you that you can get away with a deception like this and you just have to say, sorry, you drove it off the lot, you bought it? I mean, does it seem strange? Does it seem surprising that Leah is in on this? What does she have going for her? We'll find out, okay? But, but I want us to recognize tonight that the characters in the book of Genesis, and this is consistent, see both sex and marriage as being tremendously permanent. It's not reversible. It's not something that can be easily fixed. Even in a horrible deception, Jacob, of all people, Jacob feels like he has to honor this relationship. Just to close it off, I'll tell you what was said by G.K. Chesterton thousands of years after this. He said, the obvious consequence of easy divorce, or of people thinking lightly about divorce, will be people thinking lightly about marriage. Anyways, let's continue. So it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? 
Did I not serve for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It's not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, which he's conveniently for seven years never mentioned. Okay? Now, we can't get into Laban's head. I don't know if this is a seven-year-long plot, or he just assumed Leah would be married off, and then conveniently, somewhere along the line, after realizing she's past the age of marryability, he comes up with this plan. It doesn't really matter. But either way, he pulls this off and uses custom as kind of a shield, and he just says, sorry, the older always has to marry first, and so here's Leah. Uh, so verse 27, complete the week of this one, and we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Notice the two sevens there, the week and the seven years. The week is the wedding. He says, go the rest of the way through the wedding. Let's have the rest of the celebration, and if you serve me another seven years, I'll give you Rachel. Okay? Now we start to understand his motivation. It's not really about Leah. It's about Laban. Surprise, surprise. What he's realized in seven years of work is that Jacob is a hard worker, and as we'll find out later, that God is with him and tremendously blessing Laban on his behalf. He doesn't want him to leave. He's got to think of a way for him to stay. And he goes, well, he was willing to work seven years for Rachel. What if I pull a swap and then ask for another seven years? And so that's what he does. Now, there is one difference here. Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. In other words, it's up front that he gets Rachel this time. Maybe, maybe Laban has another daughter and Jacob's not willing to risk it, right? But either way, now he has two wives and seven years left on the contract. Now, it adds to here, verse 29, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So we have Zilpah and Bilhah being respectively servants for Leah and Rachel. They're going to come back in the story, but here it just gives us their names for later. Verse 30, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, the difference between favoritism of your children and favoritism of your wives is a true difference, but nonetheless, we're seeing a repetition of what we've already seen, right? Rebecca loved Jacob more than Esau, and now Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah, okay? Simply put, the reason that polygamy and polyamory goes wrong is because marital love is inherently exclusive. That's how it works. Okay? And so every once in a while I'll talk with, and I've met them, I'll talk with polygamous people who are just saying, isn't there enough love to go around? Isn't it more loving to love more people? And there's a sense, like with, you know, with neighbors, where that's totally true. But the nature of marriage, as defined in the Bible, the two shall become one flesh. To leave the entire world, as it says in the old Scottish wedding vows, wedding vows renouncing all others and cleaving to the one, is inherently exclusive. And you can take a stab at that not being important, but it will not go well for you. Because what's going to happen? What does Jesus say? No one can serve two masters. You will love one and hate the other, and that's exactly what happens here. And we're going to watch as Leah has a total psychological complex about this relationship. Is that really surprising? What did Jacob do to get Rachel? Served 14 years. What did he do to get Leah? Got drunk in the dark. She's going to have to live with that. Whatever reason she was willing to go along with her father's plot, it was a poor choice. So, verse 31. 
When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So God sees that Leah is, and loved and hated when used together in the Old Testament is a Hebrew idiom. It's one of preference. Later, the prophets actually talks about Jacob and Esau, and God speaking says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. Okay? And he's not talking about the men that we're reading about here, but the nations that follow, Israel and Edom. But the way that they use this in Hebrew is not that he has some sort of hatred for the Edomites. It's instead that comparatively, he's invested tremendously in Israel. And so here, Leah is hated because Rachel is loved, right? Because there's a comparison. And so the comparison is what's being emphasized here. And so maybe it would be more helpful if you translated unloved. When God saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So, this sets up the tension of what comes next, and here it is. All Leah wants is the love of her husband. All Rachel wants is children. And they both have what the other wants. And so, Leah here, because God mercifully and graciously cares for Leah, loves her, doesn't like the way she's being treated, and so he opens her womb. He gives her a child. And Rachel, being now the third wife, in the, uh, you know, starting with Sarah and then Rebecca and Rachel, again is barren. Okay, we've seen a pattern here. So she conceived, verse 32, and she bore a son. She called his name Reuben, which literally means, look, a son. Okay, for she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Do you see why she's excited about this baby boy? She doesn't just say, God has seen me. She says, maybe now my husband will notice me. She's looking for a one-up on her sister wife. But, verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means heard. Notice that. We have at least, what, 18 months later, right? She gets pregnant again and has another kid. Has her status changed from the birth of Reuben? No. She still sees her one as the hated, and she says, good, I have another one. And so she says, because the Lord has heard me, and she gave me this son also. So she's been praying for another son. Why? Because she wants to stack the deck for Jacob's love. Verse 34, again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi, which means attached. And so... She's naming the children after the hopes she has in her relationship with Jacob. Now he'll be close to me. Now, um, this is all happening during those seven years, at least beginning with those seven years of service that we were talking about. But over the course of this, Rachel is barren. And so now it's three to zero. I feel weird saying it that way, but that's the way the story is meant to be read because that's how Leah and Rebecca see it. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and she ceased bearing. Now, it seems to me there that we see a transition. With Judah, there's no reference to Jacob. She just says, praise. That's what Judah's name means. This time I will praise the Lord. Somehow, she seems to recognize that the pattern isn't helping the boys that she's born, number one, number two, number three, haven't made a difference in the relationship. The fourth one comes, and she's just willing to praise God just for having the son. Okay. 
This one I'll just praise the Lord. Notice also that the author here uses the covenant name for God here. Not this time I will praise God, but Jehovah. She seems to have an understanding of who God is that actually rivals her husband Jacob. Maybe it's just that he's told the stories, but she believes them. And so, verse 1 of 30, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob nor children, she envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Okay, once again, not really good examples in marriage, right? There's, there's Rachel who, who is literally willing to throttle her husband and place all the blame on his doorstep, although I'll remind you, he has four sons through another woman. Give me children or I die. But he's also got no sensitivity here. What did Isaac do when, Ra or when Rebekah was barren? He prayed for her. He interceded for her. What does Jacob do? He puts her back in her place. He says, why are you angry at me? God's the one who closed your womb. You're the barren one. Then she said, now here's where we discover that Rachel is not only the daughter of Leah, but a perfect fit for Jacob. Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And so she comes up with a plan, and we don't know, once again, if this is a culturally understandable form of adoption, or if she just knows the story of Father Abraham and Sarah, and he goes, she goes, well, this is better than nothing. Better I have a servant child that I adopt uh, than no children at all. But either way, she's trying to fix the problem. She comes up with a plan. And so verse 5, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan, which means judged. Okay. Now, she claims that this is something that God has done, but, but God never owns up and says that he's a part of this. I will point out to you, though, that these, all these sons that we're counting, eventually there will be 12, and they'll become the 12 tribes. This is the hand that God is dealing with. But that doesn't change the fact that, uh, um, that the players have cards up their sleeves, okay? It's kind of a mess. And so, verse 7, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. What does it say about Rachel here? She's not satisfied. She only has one son versus her sister's four, and he's only a half-son, a stepchild. So she gives the servant again. Now, what do we notice about Jacob in this? In this entire chapter... He just does what he's told by his wives, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with that, except that basically we're going to find later that he's effectively just a baby maker. That's all he is in these relationships. I'll show you what I mean. We'll get there in a second. But nonetheless, Bilhah has another um, child and bore a second son. Verse 8, Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Now, Naphtali is a word that probably means wrestling. That's why she references this. But notice once again how fitting it is. How does she conceive of her life, just like Jacob does, as having to fight to win? I also think it's a little bit ironic here that she feels like she's had the victory in someone else's birth labors, right? But continuing on, verse 9, When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing t children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now, we don't know if she stops bearing because she's become temporarily or permanently infertile or because Jacob's no longer sleeping with her. I actually believe it's number two, and we'll see why in a second. 
The, the point is, though, um, uh, that she sees that it isn't happening, sees that her sister's starting to catch up. She's had two. I've only got four. I stopped bearing children. So she does the same thing. Um, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife, verse 10. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called the name Gad. Now, Gad just means lucky. It means good fortune. Uh, and Leah said, ha- uh, sorry, verse 12, Leah's servant Zilpah bore him a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher, which means happy. And so notice what she does here. She employs her servant for two adopted children, and she sets the scales back to where it was. And so now she has her four children, plus two through her servant, to match her sister's two through her servant. If you're keeping track of the score, it's six to two. Verse 14, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Now, mandrakes are sometimes called love apples. It's just a small flower that sometimes bears a plum-shaped fruit. They're actually relatively rare in Mesopotamia, but they can still, to this day, be found in Syria. And for the course of history, they've been assumed to have both aphrodisiac qualities as well as being good for fertility. And so notice Reuben, the son of Leah, finds mandrakes in the field. At this moment, how many people do we have who aren't having kids? Both Leah and Rachel, right? Whether she's infertile or Jacob's not sleeping with her. But notice what happens. So he finds them, and Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said that then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Okay, so like I said, it seems, according to the text, that Leah isn't ever sleeping with Jacob. And she's not necessarily interested in the kid, but she wants to be with her husband. And so Rachel says, tell you what, when Jacob comes home, I'll send, send him to your tent if you trade me the mandrakes. Okay, so Rachel is willing to give up a night to her sister for the possibility of getting pregnant through these mandrakes. That's what's going on. So, um, verse 16, when Jacob came home from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Okay, that's why I said that Jacob doesn't come off very, very good here. Leah just comes and she says, I bought you tonight, come on. It's just, what we find here is not two good marriages or even, uh, you know, uh, one good marriage and one bad marriage, we just find bad marriages. It's a mess relationally. And so notice, though, what happens here. Um, verse 17, God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now, we've got to play a quick game here. Where are the mandrakes? Does Leah have them? Rachel does. And yet this single one-night offering, God honors, and Leah has a son. And so, although these things are known to have aphrodisiac qualities, they don't work that way in the story. In fact, eventually Rachel will get pregnant. That's at least three years after this, okay? And so, here, her gamble to try and win the war doesn't work. And God graciously, through this, gives Leah another son. And so, God listened to Leah. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name Issachar. And so she has another son whose name means wages. 
gosh, talk about counseling problems, right? Oh, where'd you get such an interesting name? I can't tell you. You don't want to know. Verse 19, Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. So she tries to find her contentment elsewhere, but eventually she comes back to the same place. And the last son she bears, Zebulon, she sees in the same way. Now I'll get my husband's respect. Now I'll get my husband's honor because, look, I've given him six children. And that's on her own, plus her servants, so that's eight. And then it adds one more child, verse 21. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Dinah is only referenced here because she's going to come up later. But interestingly enough, that brings the total children in the land of Padanaram to 12. Okay, eventually we will get, um, sorry, we got to get Joseph in here for 11. Eventually we'll get Benjamin as well, and that'll be 12 sons plus Dinah. Okay, um, so verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph. Okay. Now, you would expect, reading that in English, that Joseph's name is going to have to do with the taking away of reproach. That's not what his name means. His name means instead saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Joseph means may he add. And so she recognizes here that she's no longer the barren one. She says, God's taken away my reproach. But she names her son a prayer for a second son. And just as an aside, the birth of that second son will kill her. When Benjamin is born, the labor will be so hard, she'll try and name him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, right before she dies. And Jacob's just going to stick in and step in and change his name to my beloved son, Benjamin. Okay. But nonetheless here, she's, she's got a child. She's no longer barren, and all she can think about is having another kid because she's way behind her sister at this point. Verse 25, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own house and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Now, I think we'll probably stop here tonight, but I want to just point something out about the way that he approaches this. Does it seem weird? He comes to him and he says, I fulfilled my contract. The 14 years are up. Now let me go my way with my wives and my children. Does that sound like something you need to ask your employer on the day that your employment is finished? The contract is over. Why is he saying this? Okay, there's two possible reasons. One is because he actually has been operating as a full-blown slave. And later in the Old Testament law, we know that if, if you had a servant and that servant married in your care and you sent away the servant, you didn't necessarily have to annul the contracts of his wife and of his children. Legally, that was just not the expectation. And so it may be here that Joseph recognizes he's free to go, but not take his family. More likely, though, what's happening here is he recognizes he can take his 12 kids and his two wives and his two concubine wives, and he can leave, but that's all he's taking, right? How is he supposed to sustain this big family, even on the journey all the way home when he has nothing to his own name? What he's asking here is for a natural and normal thing that my father-in-law would help me to go out and start a life on my own, right? So that's what's going on here, but it's going to lead to another advantage, Laban, another place where he's got the upper hand. And so we'll watch how that plays out next week. But what do you do with this chapter? 
Okay? We can recognize right here, right now, that this would be of interest to Israel later because these are the 12 tribes' original children. Right? This is where the family of Israel comes from that becomes the 12 tribes. Okay? But it's clearly more than just an origin story because you almost wince reading it that way. What is really going on here? What's really going on is a whole bunch of people who feel like they have to fend for themselves are doing so to their own destruction. Okay? Rachel and Leah in the story are just foils for Jacob and Laban. They're all trying to pursue things the same way. What I most want, I'm going to get, and I'm going to get by accomplishing it my way. And what they most want constantly escapes them. Like I said, Rachel finally gets a son um, after at least 14 years, but as maybe, it may be as many as 20 years. She finally gets a son. But she goes for broke and bets again, and it costs her her life. She never even gets to know her second son. Leah is constantly trying to earn her husband's affection and has all of these kids to do it, and he never receives it. Now, I should add, when Jacob is buried at the end of his life, he tells his kids, bury me next to Leah. We're not told why. We're not told why he selects to be buried in the family tomb with Leah instead of where Rachel was emergency buried when her kid, you know, when she had her kid and she died. But that's his choice. And so he, at the end, he wants to be buried with Leah, whatever that means. Um... But here's, here's the thing. The story repeats so many times, it's almost amazing. It's deception, and it's wrestling. And as Tim Keller likes to say, whenever we go about life like this and we're pursuing Rachel, we always wake up next to Leah. What you're finding in this story is constant disappointment and frustration. And you can put it one of two ways tonight. One, you're not enough to make the right thing happen. And that would probably be a sufficient thing, but it's not the whole story. It's not just here that God wants to give them good things and they're fighting to get them for themselves and so it goes sideways. It's that the good things, they're treating like ultimate things. And they're treating them like ultimate things so that everything else falls away. It justifies me not being a good sister to my sister. It means that I can take advantage of my husband. Uh, you know, to get my children. It, it all plays out the same way. It means that I can just... Uh, you know, go along with this and keep my head down and have lots of sex with different women. That's the only way you can describe what Jacob does in this story, right? But the, the flaw is so deep that it's also self-destructive. The aim is so bent that, as I said about um, the quote from George MacDonald, you're either going to fail apart from God miserably or succeed more miserably. What we find in this chapter, in Jacob's entire time away, is not a guy who learns that God is faithful and grows in his trust, but a man who is still intent on saving himself and getting his way. And it's, it's destructive. I talked to a guy once who was um, in Seattle because he had some uh, warrants out for his arrest. Some tickets and things had combined to the point. He was living in another state, so he had come up here just to take care of it. And he told me a story, and he's like, yeah, I, I had a kid with this woman, and I was living in her parents' basements, and I didn't have a job. I was just playing games. And one day, the girl who I had this kid with just disappeared. She left her family's house. We don't know where she is. And so now I've left my kid in the care, and I'm trying to get my life in order. 
And so I was giving him dinner, and there was going to be a service to follow. And I said, well, why don't you stick around for the Bible study? And he said, I don't really believe in, you know, some white, white-headed, pie-in-the-sky God. And I said, neither do I. And he said, well, what I mean is, I, I like to think I'm the master of my own destiny. And I just leaned across the table, and I said, how's that working out for you? Right? He, he couldn't see that that's exactly where his, where his life had gone sideways. There's a little bit of Jacob in all of us. The best thing you can do is to wave the white flag. The best thing you can do is surrender. Jacob's not there yet. He's going to continue to fight his battles, and when he puts Laban behind him, he's still going to have Esau in front of him. But it could have happened earlier. Let's pray. Father, the worst thing we can do in our detours is go, oh, clearly I took the wrong turn, but I can just press on and take a few more turns and I'll get back on the right path. As C.S. Lewis says, sometimes the only way to go forward is to turn around and go back to where we were before we were lost. And Jacob's not going to figure that out till he gets back to Bethel. But I pray for better things for us. I pray, Lord, that if there's any area in our life where we've taken a detour, where we've taken the reins and have taken things into our own hands, where we've elevated something in our life to be so ultimate that it's made us subservient, made us a slave to it, and now we're chasing it to our own destruction. I pray that we would forsake it, that like Jacob eventually does, we would bury our idols and walk away and worship the living and true God who is present, who is capable, and who is the only Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen.